Well, Elsie, Elsie warned me not to get too emotional this morning. I told her I'd just look at her if I start feeling the tears coming on. So where are you, Elsie? Okay, there you go. Good. Thank you. It was all fine until we started singing. I mean, yeah. Hey, I would like to invite you to pray aloud with me. The prayer that you have heard me always begin my sermons for the past five and a half years. Let us pray together. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in fifth grade, I had a startling revelation. For the past few months, I had been hearing my parents and family talking about my brother's upcoming high school commencement. I knew that this meant he was finishing 12th grade and would be leaving high school behind and going on to college. A few days before the commencement ceremony, I happened to ask my parents, what does commencement mean? I was shocked when my parents told me that, it, that the word commencement means beginning or start. In my fifth grade mind, I looked at them and I said, well, shouldn't that, what we ha- shouldn't that be the kind of speech that we have in September then? Why are we having it now when Dave is graduating from high school? I was so focused on the ceremony being the end of the road for my brother and for his high school career that it was tough for me to look beyond and realize that there was life beyond Penridge High School for him, that that this was just the beginning of a life. And as my parents explained to me, it was the beginning of the rest of his life because he was well prepared now to take on a lot of different things. I actually struggled with this seeming dichotomy for many years. And it wasn't until my own commencement ceremony, some seven years later, when I was speaking at my commencement, that I felt that I knew the real meaning of the word commencement. It is not an end, but it is a beginning, an honoring of what has led you to this point so that you can best move ahead. So today is my commencement sermon. My final sermon as one of your pastors here. But it is not the end. It is not the end for this church, and it is not, I hope, the end for me. Both of us have an incredibly full life ahead of us, and all that has happened to this point has prepared us For this new beginning. And how appropriate that this day would come in Advent. Advent, as we discussed last week, is a time of waiting. But the true definition of Advent is a coming into place or to view, an arrival. We see the coming of the Christ child during Advent. We await the arrival of the Messiah. But when I thought about giving my final sermon... On an Advent Sunday, it it seemed wrong. 
Advent is about looking ahead and expectations and anticipation, not about saying goodbye and reflecting on our past. But then I realized that Advent is the perfect time for me to say goodbye. To me, Advent and commencement are similar in that they both talk about beginnings and arrivals, newness. See, I have great expectations for this congregation, and I leave you at a time that you are full of growth and of joy and of energy, anticipation for what is to come. We are peering ahead, all of us, into what is to come. And just as John the Baptist didn't really know what for sure what was ahead, he was preaching to the crowds. And I feel like that in a, in a bit of a way, too, this morning. I'm preaching what I have heard and what I have been taught and what I feel God has shared with me, not knowing exactly what it will mean to each of you, but believing that it is indeed good news from God. I suspect when John came preaching in the wilderness, people didn't quite know what to expect from him. I mean, come on, this guy was different. He wore incredibly odd clothes, he ate unappetizing things, and he preached tough words. Well, while I hope I didn't wear such odd clothing, I suspect when I first came to East Chestnut Street five and a half years ago, you didn't quite know what to expect from me. You actually knew very little of me. You trusted your search committee immensely, Glenn Roth, Deb Kemmerer, Sue Freed, and Derek King. I'm not sure what it means that two of them are no longer with us. <laughs> anyway, you all welcomed me into, your, into the church, into our lives, and into your world. And still, you had no idea what was to come. None of us did. There were mistakes, and I made plenty of them along the way, for which you all have offered me abundant grace. But one of the first things, the very first things that I noticed about this congregation, the very first Sunday that I preached here, in fact, the pulpit was over on that side of the platform on my candidating weekend, and it was during Lent. And I remember vividly that one of the most amazing things during that time of that sermon that I preached to you, was that I have never, and even since then, spoken or preached to a group of people who listens so intently and sincerely as you do. I thought maybe it was just because you were really wanting to check out the potential new pastor, but it kept happening. Every time I preached, once I came, you sit and you listen, and Glenn Roth takes notes, and others of you do other things that appear to be interactive. There are comments and questions that I receive afterwards, emails throughout the week, pondering things, questioning things. I love it. Barry Friesen's questions that I received throughout the week. Did you think about this from the scripture? In fact, one of the things 
reminds me of a sermon I preached almost five years ago to this day when someone from this congregation was listening so well that she stood up during sharing time and said, this John the Baptist guy, I have some interesting questions about why and how he ate locusts. And so I wrote them down and I'd like to share them with you. Esther, may I share your questions again? (laughs) I still have the piece of paper. These were Esther's questions from John the Baptist's sermon five years ago, and I loved them. And I got to tell you this today, my fiance Michael is preaching at his congregation, and he is opening his sermon with your questions. Did John pick off the wings before he ate the locusts? Did he roast them? before eating them, or did he eat them raw? Did John wait for them to crawl out of the old shell so that the new shell would be a bit more tender to the teeth? Did he drizzle honey over them after he roasted them? See, she's hoping he really did roast them, I can can tell. Was it a regular occurrence for people to go off and live in the desert like that? I mean... Jesus did it, too, a little bit later on. And what did John's parents think of him being away from the family circle so long? Did John go to the desert for contemplation and cleansing? Was he trying to gain understanding so that he could be prepared to prepare the way of the Messiah? And how do we go to the desert today. You are an amazing group of listeners, an amazing group of people to have the honor and privilege to preach to. And you continue to challenge yourselves by listening through the sermons throughout the week. I'm always amazed. I I don't do it very often, but every once in a while I will go on our website that I know Larry Zook and, and a number of others keep up to date with the sermon.net podcast. And if I um, want to re-listen to one of Ron's excellent sermons, um, I will sometimes download it and listen to it. And I'm often surprised how many hits our sermons get. I Usually it's a minimum of about 30 and sometimes over 100 hits our sermons are getting. And I, we don't know who's listening. Okay, my parents listen once, so they, I mean, that's one. But, I mean, beyond that, 29 people are listening to the sermons. And I'm amazed at how many of you are listening when you haven't been here to church. And I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but you don't have to. I mean, it's great that you do. But it's really cool. And how many people come? I I don't know how many weeks people come up to me and they said, we're all out of CDs in the back. You know, I missed the service last week. And I want to listen, not just to the sermon, but to everything. I want to hear what's going on in community life. I missed a week and I, I missed this group, this congregation. So when I preached to you my very first sermon during my candidating weekend, I knew that I did not come to a place that was unprepared for ministry. 
you were open. You were open to the word and to God's voice and to my ministry. And as we know, my coming as a woman was new and potentially controversial for this congregation and for this conference. And as a congregation, you processed it, you discussed it, and you opened yourselves up to women in ministry so that I would not come as some sort of sacrificial lamb, but instead that I could come to a place that was accepting of my gifts and my whole being. You offered me hospitality, warmth, openness, and grace throughout the past five and a half years. And as a congregation, you had already paved a way for women in ministry, making my path, my time here, much easier. People like Sharon Crable, Dorcas Lehman, Rose Brenneman Stewart, Mim Cruz, Pam Nice Yoder, Sue Groff, Linda Gaiman Peachy, Judy Zimmerman Herr, Linford King, Marietta King, Connie Stauffer, Maribel Crable, Glenn and Annabelle Roth, Marcus Smucker, Harold Stauffer, Ron Adams, and many, many, many more of you have prepared this congregation and Lancaster Conference for the use of women's gifts in church leadership for decades, long before I came. And I cannot tell you enough how grateful I am for the tireless work in the years before I came as well as while I have been here. I have always felt supported and loved as your pastor and leader, regardless of my gender. Many of you remember James Hess. James and Beatrice attended here for many, many years. In fact, James was bishop and uh, was an integral part of the leadership of this congregation for many, many years. James and Beatrice no longer are able to physically come and attend with us anymore. But when I first came, James and Beatrice would always sit over here And about my first year of my ministry, Beatrice had a very devastating stroke. And it was just a few months into my ministry, and I spent many hours with James and Beatrice in the ICU at Lancaster General Hospital. And Beatrice was fairly unresponsive in those times. And so James actually would often invite me to sit outside of the room And we would sit out there, and I remember sitting one day for about three hours, and James and I just talked about anything. And I had one of the wonderful opportunities of being a pastor, of just learning James and Beatrice's stories. And he told me about his ministry here, he told me about his work, and he told me about their many, many years of ministry in Honduras, how he and Beatrice met, about their children, and it was a gift to me. And I think it was valuable to James because it kind of took his focus a little bit off of what was happening to Beatrice at the time because at that point the doctors didn't think she was going to make it. I returned the next day and continued our conversations outside of the ICU room. And about an hour and a half into our conversation, James had just finished telling me a story 
about their work in Honduras. And he stopped, and he turned, and he looked to me, and he said, You know, in all of my years of ministry, I never once preached on the woman's prayer covering. Well, I sat there in silence, not knowing how to respond to this kind of comment from James Hess. And after a very pregnant pause, I turned to James and I said, you know, James, neither have I. (laughs) And James busted up laughing. And the two of us sat there. James, a retired bishop of Lancaster Conference, and I laughing about the fact that neither of us had preached on this. And we began to bond and build a relationship so much so that a few, a year, year and a half, I didn't do the timeline, later, when Lancaster Conference was preparing for their vote on the ordination of women, James was down in the lobby in the foyer after church one morning during coffee time. And he called me over. He had his cane, and so he called me over, and he he grabbed my hand very tenderly. It was the week before the vote was to be finalized, and he said, I wish retired bishops had a vote, because if they did, I know how I would vote. My ordination day, May 6, 2009, was a highlight for this congregation because of what it meant to the broader church. And it was by far, I'm just getting chills thinking about it right now, it was by far one of the best days of my life. I will never forget how packed this place was and how the celebration of gifts, of all people's gifts, were honored that day. And I will never forget Clara Waybright standing up here reading scripture. It was one of the most powerful moments for me to watch the power of a young girl reading the word of God. Thanks, Clara, for doing that. God does not come to a people who are unprepared, and I know that despite the sense of surprise that many people experienced in the Bible, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth, and Paul, and we could go on and on and on. God was already preparing them before God came to them. God was preparing them for their roles. God doesn't come to people who are unprepared. John the Baptist's role was incredibly important in recognizing this. John was called to help people prepare, and what John did was call them to repentance, to forgiveness of sins, and to baptism. Sometimes we think that the way to live out our repentance that John called us to and to demonstrate this reformation is to create, as John said, the way of the Lord. And the way that we do that is by living out our own obedience to what we understand as the vision of Christianity. 
But what happens when we rely solely on that is that we miss one very important part of John's story. And that is what we read today, Jesus doesn't show up at all. Well, we're glad Jesus is here with us today. But, I mean, Jesus himself doesn't come in the story at all. I mean, where is Jesus in this story of John the Baptist? In fact, Jesus doesn't do anything until a few verses later when Jesus just shows up. Jesus hadn't done anything until he was baptized. Not a word, not a sermon, not a disciple, not a healing, nothing. When Jesus came to John a few verses later, he merely walked forward and he asked John to baptize him and he offered himself to God. When we feel like we need to prepare the way of the Lord ourselves, we, ref- we may forget and thus leave out the important element of divine grace, which pervades all the Gospels. All throughout the Bible, people were desiring to follow God, but they needed to rely on the divine grace to guide them. In Exodus, God through the pillars of fire and a cloud. God guided Noah with the dove and the affirmation of the rainbow. And multiple images of hope and promise and renewal remind us that human obedience and walking in the way of God's word is the proper response to God's grace. We don't need to recreate a path that has been already prepared for us. We don't have to create paths by working in obedience in ways that we don't know for sure. It's already done for us. God is there. God is waiting for us to say, you are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. So we don't need to build a highway and then wait for God. God is already there. God is already here, waiting to draw us closer, even before we repent. And so sometimes we just need to follow the signs already present and not create new signage and then offer ourselves as willing. And in this congregation, I have seen God popping up again and again and again in small ways, in miraculous ways, in quick response. Don't you just love the quick responses to the listservs that announce someone is in need? Uh, it, it makes you want to be on your listserv 24-7 because you just got to take advantage of, of when somebody sends out the email. Or to the progress on 639 East Chestnut Street House. Or to the, or to the support that someone is given when a loved one dies or when someone has experienced a surgery or an illness, to the cards or an email that come just at the right time when you're going through a tough time, to the fact that this congregation just a few weeks ago requested a larger budget for next year so that we could continue to give more money to this congregation to the community meals that are served here every Monday night, to the prayers that so many of you give and offer each week for so many things, for your unfailing work for peace and justice and love. God did not come to an unprepared people. God does not come to unprepared people. John showed us that. 
perhaps the purpose of going to the desert was to prepare himself. And God would not come here if you were not prepared to carry on the work of the kingdom. You are prepared because you continue to open your eyes and your ears and your hearts to God's words through scripture, through prayer, through actions, through listening to others. You, like John the Baptist, are pointing the way to the Messiah because you live in a state of preparedness to do so. Now let's admit it. John the Baptist was just odd. I am very amazed at the faith of John. He was strange. He wore camel hair clothes and locusts and honey, and he went out and lived in the wilderness. And what is amazing, it's a small fact that we often mistake, mistakenly look over in the text, is that he didn't come into the town, but people actually went out to the wilderness to listen to him. They were drawn to this oddball to hear the words that he was preaching. They came from miles and miles around to be baptized by him. He must have had some amazing charisma, one that drew people to him. And, and, you know, the people had reason to focus their attention on John. I mean, he attracted large crowds, and we know what that's like when there's a large crowd. We want to see what's going on. And, And his message was tough. It was unique, and for some, even heretical at times. And yet, still, the people came. And his simple lifestyle, well, they might have been, it might have been attractive to some people. And the man clearly had charisma about him. After all, he did draw these huge crowds. And he could have been kind of egotistical, pretty proud of himself, feeling pretty good about his popularity and his locust breath and his camel hair, his attraction, his followers. He could have even maybe made people think that he was, in fact, the Messiah. But John didn't. Whenever he was asked, and I suspect he was asked over and over again, well, are you the one? Oh, no. Oh, no, John would quickly deny. And he pointed the way to Christ. In no way did he want the attention to be on him, but rather on Christ. Now, that is tough. And while that has some joy, it's not always easy to be joyful and humble like John the Baptist. John's purpose was to be a living signpost, pointing the way to the Messiah. John's life would have been a failure if people had merely stood admiring the sign but going no further. Now, everything about John's life said, on to Jesus, look to Jesus. The comfort of John's message and Isaiah's text come not in the radical charisma that either of these men offer, but rather in the radical claims of their messages. The comfort comes from knowing that both John and Isaiah offer us the messages of repentance and grace. We, like John the Baptist, are called to prepare the way for Christ, not because we are perfect, but because we are forgiven. 
This is the good news of the gospel. And over the years, my prayer and the purpose of my ministry here with you all has been to point the way to Christ. To preach the good news so that all of you, all of us, can receive the message of forgiveness and comfort that John the Baptist preached many years ago. But I haven't done it alone by any means. Many of you have been a vital part of my ministry, allowing me to be a part of your lives. And so I would enlighten you as I read a statement that may be true about you to stand if you are able. And when you stand, please remain standing. So if the following statements are true about you, please stand and remain standing. If I assisted in your baptism, please stand. If I visited you in the hospital or in your home while you were recovering from an illness, please stand. If you were part of the Tuesday morning prayer group that prayed together weekly for a number of years, please stand. If you worked in the church office with me during the week, please stand. If you ever helped me in one of my brainstorming sessions for a sermon, please stand. If you served on the board of elders, the church board, or PCRC during my tenure here, please stand. If you gave birth to me or fathered me, please stand. (laughs) I told him I wasn't going to embarrass them, but I I had to. Yeah, it's cool that my mom and dad are here. Thanks. If I ate a meal in your home or if you ate a meal in my home, please stand. If you were in a Sunday school class that I taught, please stand. If I worked with you in serving Monday night meal, a Monday night meal or flapjacks at church, please stand. If I was involved in a funeral service for a loved one of yours, please stand. If you have started attending here in the last five years, please stand. <laughs> and if you have ever, ever heard me preach a sermon, Please stand. This morning, you are all standing because you have been a vital part of my ministry here at East Chestnut Street. And because you're standing means you are ready and prepared to follow the call of God, just as John the Baptist was called. Remember, God does not call those who are unprepared. He may call those who aren't sure. That he may call those who don't know what they are doing or don't know what lies ahead, but he does not call those who are unprepared. You, my brothers and sisters, are prepared. You are capable. You are loved. John the Baptist always kept his task at hand and constantly kept pointing the way towards Christ. Whenever the focus was on him, he told of the one who was coming that was greater than he 
one more powerful, more worthy. And my hope and prayer over the last five years, like John the Baptist, was that I have pointed the way to Christ whenever possible. May you always follow the signs pointing to Christ whenever possible. And may you know what amazing, beloved, fantastic, generous, loving, and profound people of God you are. Amen. You may be seated.